Hello, my name is Kate Carlson. I'm a reporter at the Holland Sentinel. You're about to hear some highlights from an event that I covered on Tuesday, March 5th. This was a panel discussion and was a part of the Living Sustainably on the Lakeshore series. At this event, housing experts talked about the complexities of the affordable housing issue in Holland and across Ottawa County. First, you'll hear Angela Maxwell, who is the Homeless Outreach Specialist at Community Action House. Then you'll hear from Ryan Kilpatrick, who serves as the director at Housing Next. Hello, my name is Angela Maxwell, as Hannah said, and I'm a Homeless Outreach Specialist at Community Action House. Um, I'll be talking a little bit more and then just outreach. Uh, Community Action House does quite a bit in the community um, that aren't maybe directly um, involved in housing, but indirectly are certainly involved in housing. So this is kind of what the roadmap of what we're going to be talking about is. Um, looking at what is affordable housing, the impacts of affordable housing, community efforts, and uh, future directions. So what is housing? Uh, for most of us, and definitely for service providers, uh, housing is certainly purchase and rental options. Um, but from the perspective of clients, oftentimes they would consider their housing whatever it is that is sheltering them. So their vehicles, a tent, um, many times people have to make a home with whatever they have. Uh, wherever a home is available. So what is affordable? Uh, generally, it's considered to be 30% of your income. Um, that's certainly more varied in practice, and I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that later, and I bet others will touch on that as well. Um, most people are spending above, or a lot of people are spending above 30%. Um, so what are some of the things that limit housing choice? Um, 36% of Ottawa County residents are ALICE or poverty level. ALICE um, stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed. 49% um, of Holland City residents are ALICE or poverty level. Oops. Yeah. Um, <coughs> accessibility and accommodation. So uh, anything that limits your, your housing choice, if you need any certain accommodations or need uh, certain access, um, like handicap access, you might have limited options than otherwise. Um, if you need any living supports or transportation supports, that's going to influence um, what sorts of housing choices you have. Uh, what are some of the barriers that we see in housing? Uh, lack in stock, lack in variance in housing options. So again, um, having different, different types that fit different types of needs. Um, limited resources, <coughs> incomes um, are stagnant, and living, uh, living costs of living are increasing. Um, limited support, so there are quite a bit of, um, there's quite a bit of work in the, in the community to address this problem, but um, oftentimes wait lists are pretty long. Um, guidelines can be uh, very narrow, so it can be hard for people to qualify for the supports that are available. Um, and we put computer literacy in there because uh, especially within outreach, that's something that we see as a big challenge. Um, to be able to access support and to just look for housing and access housing, you have to have some technological aptitude. Um, and for a lot of the people that we work with, that's a huge barrier. Um, and then high costs, mortgages are going up, rents are going up, um, and renters are uh, overburdened with housing costs. So these are some of the impacts. Um, one of the impacts is general community health. Um, 
So people are having to make concessions who are in some of these circumstances, so they might opt in living in more dangerous or unhealthy environments. Um, if they had other choices, they might be able to um, pursue things that were more healthy for them, um, or are living in substandard units, or units that um, create access and uh, are um, challenges for people to participate in communities. So if you um, have issues with transportation or just like mobility, um, living in an area that's easy to access community can be important. <coughs> Um, physical health um, and mental health, again, um, housing circumstances can exacerbate these issues, but these issues could also exacerbate um, challenges within housing. Um, and then education and childcare, housing certainly influences school attendance and student hunger. Um, and childcare is a, a big issue, so that was a little piece of data that I thought was interesting. Um, not a lot of new daycares opening and a lot of young children are being added to the community. Um, employment and transportation. So um, I think our community is known pretty well for having a lot of employment opportunity, um, but when there's not housing opportunity to match, uh, that can create challenges and people looking to live in alternative communities or um, being forced to make commutes that maybe wouldn't otherwise be necessary, um, or increase uh, transportation costs to offset some of that. Um, and then if you rely on tra uh, public transportation, that's also gonna influence where you're able to work and where you're able to live. Um, and then the, the back limitations, that's actually something we kinda um, see at the food pantry. So for people who access um, uh, public transport, there's a limit on how many bags they can bring on with them. Um, so you have to strategize even like when you can access food resources, which is again um, going to ultimately impact housing. Um, so this is kind of the day-to-day -day experience. A lot of community action houses services are revolved around um, food programs. So uh, th this is something that we see housing and in, in impacting people in the day-to-day. Um, so within outreach, uh, people have limited food choices because they might not have access to cook. Um, again, uh, transportation issues, like I said too, there's a lot of uh, food insecurity um, is going to impact uh, the, your ability to afford housing um, because you have to make concessions. Again, there's, uh, if you can spend more money on food or money, more money on housing. Um, and again, these are some stats that we found interesting. Um, 6,000 plus students on free lunch in the county, it was quite a bit. Um, so homelessness and context. So um, the Michigan Campaigns to End Homelessness Annual Report um, kind of divides the state into 10 regions. Um, our region is the second highest uh, percentage that accounts for total state homelessness. Um, and we're only exceeded by Detroit. Uh, by the Detroit area, not just by Detroit City. So it's like the region, West Michigan region, Detroit region. Uh, so between the two regions, we make up almost half of the entire homelessness in the state. Um, in the 2017 point time count, the 258 individuals were counted experiencing homelessness. So that's like a snapshot. It's one night on any given night in the community, how many people might be um, experiencing homelessness. In the Homeless Assessment Report, uh, it was estimated uh, over 1,400 people are experiencing homelessness throughout the year in the county. 
Um, and Community Action House Outreach, we've engaged about um, 90 individuals and we've, we've only been doing outreach for a little over a year now, so. Um, causes of homeless, uh, homelessness, structural factors, so this is gonna be things like housing stock, um, systems failures, um, that might look like um, people not exiting institutions um, into housing, um, and individual relational factors, so that might be medical diagnosis, um, personal crisis, breakdown of a relationship, etc. Um, so the experience of homelessness, so uh, in, in from what we see, we see quite a, quite a varied population. We see different genders, different ages, um, different employment statuses. We also see quite varied shelter. Um, so, you know, even in our community, people are sleeping in greenhouses, in porta-potties, in vehicles, um, building their own structures, sometimes in the, wood, out of, in the woods out of um, available materials. Um, we also see that they have to increase their ability to be mobile. Um, so um, you're gonna minimize your belongings so that you can pick up and go as easy and fast as you can. Um, you also have to keep your organized uh, things um, highly organized because you're subjected to the elements. So it's easy for your belongings to get lost or destroyed. Um, it can be difficult to keep up with hygiene without access to um, hot water. And um, mail can be a huge challenge um, in terms of accessing services and in just looking for housing when you don't have an address uh, for people to reply back to you on. That can be a challenge. And some places even require that you have an address. So if you didn't have anything to put down there, um, that can be a challenge. And then general safety issues. Um, this can be because of extreme weather, which obviously right now we're all experiencing the sting of winter. Um, so, you know, we, we're seeing people who sometimes need to take shelter in, um, in ways that they wouldn't have to if the weather wasn't quite so bad. Um, so this is stuff that Community Action House is doing. Um, we do outreach, that's kind of what I do. We also have um, housing and education programs where we provide home buyer education, foreclosure, foreclosure prevention, and financial education. And then um, we have a variety of ways that we provide um, food through, for, through our food services. Um, we have our Epic Empowerment um, <coughs> program, and we try to participate in ad advocacy as much as we can, just like being here tonight. Um, so who does Community Action House serve? Um, our pantry serves about 1,200 to 1,600 people a year. 77% um, are um, below poverty level, 99% are below 200% poverty level. 16% um, of the adults we serve are uninsured, 34.8% employed, and 276 have disabilities. Um, so if you combine those employed and disabilities too, um, you can kind of see that most people who are able to work, uh, who are accessing our pantry, are working. Um, the community kitchen, about 204 people to 400 people a year. Um, housing and education, 150 to 300, and then street outreach, 90. Um, so community efforts, I'm not gonna talk a whole lot about this because some of these are here tonight and they're probably gonna talk to you a little bit more about them. Um, but there is a lot of important efforts going on in the community. I'm not sure people are always aware of some of the work on the back end that's being done. Um, I, uh, I don't think the issue at hand is necessarily a reflection of um, 
our failures, um, but just an opportunity to maybe work better together and um, create some innovative ways to address issues going forward. Um, so future direction, this is just kind of what we hope to see at Community Action House. Um, we're constantly uh, trying to increase our, our understanding of community need. I think the entire community has to have an investment in that. Um, the same thing of understanding local resources. So um, addressing this issue is going to take a, a coordination of local efforts, which does uh, require that we have a deeper understanding of the resources that we're that we have available to us. Um, and then prioritizing to uh, appropriately meet the need and strategizing service provision to do that. Um, we'd like to see some uh, increased housing stock and variance in that. Um, and the same thing with supports. So flexibility in housing supports that we can provide people would also be a huge asset in addressing the affordable housing issue. Um, and then what can individuals learn Again, continue to learn about the issue. This is this is a great event, and I appreciate the Living Sustainably and the uh, library for putting this on because I think um, conversations like this is um, it pressures the community and the powers that be to pay attention to the issue, and it just allows everyone an opportunity to I think to um, to learn more about what everyone else is doing, so that we can maybe have some better coordination uh, of services going forward. Um, one of the things that we advocate a lot is uh, for folks to really think about what affordable means. Very often when you hear affordable housing, uh, there's a little switch that goes off in your brain and you think about a project, right? You think about a type of housing and you think about a specific group of people that might want to live in that housing. Um, the problem with that switch is that we all want affordable housing, right? So none of us are in a position where we're really inclined to spend much more than 30% of our income on housing as Angela mentioned earlier. And so regardless of your income, um, you're looking for affordable housing and your neighbors are looking for affordable housing. It's just that what is affordable is different for you than it is for somebody else who might live down the street or who might not have a home. And so we need to keep that in mind. Uh, a lot of times when we're out, I'll hear from other advocates who say, we have to stop using the term affordable because it's got these negative connotations we should use workforce housing, or we should use attainable housing. Well, the problem is using different terminology doesn't unpack the stigma that comes with the idea of who deserves affordable housing and who doesn't. And so what we really need to do is, is recognize that we all deserve some level of affordability, and the real question is how do we get it, and for whom are we working? So uh, that being said, uh, this is a slide that I'll share a lot. What, it, what you're looking at right now is high-end housing, but it's high-end dense housing, as Chad was talking about. It's an up-zoned piece of property where you're getting more units on a per-acre basis than we traditionally allow in most of our single-family districts. Um, both of these could be single-family owner-occupied, or they could both be rental. Um, the intent here is they're well-designed buildings that fit well into a neighborhood context, um, and you can have a diversity of homeowners or renters in those kinds of, of projects. And what's important from our perspective is it meets a market demand. So that might be my next slide. Yeah. So I, I should let Chad come up and talk about this because he's the expert. Um, but so how many people took an economics course at some point in high school or college? Man, you should be up here. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, so the basic laws of supply and demand are uh, fixed around scarcity, 
right? So if whether you're looking at crude oil prices or the value of a commodity like agriculture in the marketplace, when uh, there is a scarcity of that product and there are still a lot of people competing to have that product, the price goes up almost every time. Unless there's something like uh, uh, an oil cartel that can control the price. We don't have a housing cartel, so we can't control the price. Um, so what happens is, since 2009, again, as Chad pointed out, we haven't built very much housing stock, mostly because of all of the impacts of the recession. Um, so we lost half of our labor supply in that period of time devoted to the construction industry. Very often what happened is 2007, uh, 2006 mostly, and then a little bit in 2007, we had construction firms that were ramping up, that were doubling in size in terms of their labor force because the housing market was so hot and there was money to be made. In late 2007 and 2008, a bunch of those firms went under or left the state of Michigan altogether. And so those workers either had to find a different line of work or had to go to a different state to find work. Uh, and so what happened is we dramatically reduced our labor supply and didn't build a lot of housing for five or six years. And then we came out of the recession and realized, oh gosh, we're way under supply. There's a ton of demand. Um, wages aren't going up. Uh, and so the competition creates scarcity. So this is an example of a, an efficiency apartment that I like to show quite a bit. Um, I pretend that this is the IKEA catalog. Um, honestly, I don't know where this image came from. But um, this is an efficiency apartment. It's roughly 400 square feet. Um, the stat that Laura shared uh, that 350 households right now are looking for a one-bedroom apartment. Well, um, interesting to know that only the city of Holland in this region allows for apartments smaller than 750 square feet. So most of our zoning across this region is requiring people to spend more money on their housing because they're setting minimum uh, square foot sizes for the size of an apartment. The same is true for single family homes. Now, uh, I hear the groaning and I agree. With you. Um, but for the most part, when these standards get written, we're, we're not really thinking about what are the long-term implications of those standards. What we're thinking about is, well, how many cars are gonna get parked there and how many people do we really want to live there and it's close to a school and there's no traffic light there. So we've got planning commissioners that are trying to make decisions um, and are sometimes equipped with all the data and sometimes not, depending on um, how uh, how much staff they can afford to have. Uh, and so oftentimes those decisions about minimum square foot requirements aren't fully informed by the data or by the market statistics. Um, it's more of kind of a gut feeling. Uh, and so what we've got to do is get away from that. So this is another example of a high and dense housing typology. And this gets again to, to Chad's point, is there is demand for density right now, a lot of demand. Um, and what we've got to recognize is that um, when all other things are equal, this housing type wins, right? Because the buyer of this housing type will pay significantly more than the buyer of the other housing type. Um, and so there's a lot more profit in it. So for a developer or for a builder, it makes much more sense to build this product than the other product. Uh, both of these products are important in the marketplace. And so allowing for both of them to exist is important. Uh, but what's critical is that we start to think through how do we provide more stock at all price points? Is how do we get into those zoning ordinances at every level, not just the city, but also the townships, and think through what are the building typologies that we're willing to allow for that greater level of density, 
to get um, more units. Because at the end of the day, the, I mean, the best thing we could do would be to just subsidize units left and right, right? If we had a billion dollars, which is roughly what it would require to meet the need out there today, just in the Holland Zealand region. If we had that billion dollars and we could solve the, the housing uh, affordability issue for all of those families out there that are struggling, the 36% of Ottawa County families that are struggling, um, it wouldn't be an issue. But what we have to do simultaneous to figuring out, well, what are all of the financial supports and social supports that we can bring to the table for the folks who are most in need? We simultaneously have to leverage the private sector and build as much additional supply as possible because more supply um, that actually meets demand begins to push down price. Essentially what we want to have is a vacancy rate of about 8% in the market. When we saw earlier, vacancy rates are about 2% currently. That 8% vacancy rate pushes landlords with lower quality products to drive their prices down. And that's not to say that folks who can't afford it deserve a lower quality product, but that is how the market works currently. Um, and so we've got to leverage the market in the way that we can. So as we talk about living sustainably, one of the things that we have to think about is how do we, how do we tax sustainably? How do we think about the budget of our local municipality, whether it's a city or a township? Um, and one of the most important characteristics of your tax bill on an annual basis is the infrastructure that serves your home. Whether you rent or own, the infrastructure that serves your home is one of the most expensive things that you're paying for as part of your property taxes. Um, also included that are police and fire, school, right? There's a lot of things there. Um, but as we think about how do we leverage the value of that infrastructure to get the most bang for the buck, the higher density housing is far more productive in terms of economic value across the landscape. So the more of this type of housing we get, the lower your property tax bill gets uh, because you've got more households paying for the same amount of linear infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about those things is important because very often we think about all of the things that we perceive to be negative about density. Um, and and I, honestly, I don't know this, but I think for the most part, we think about density negatively because the federal government built a lot of bad housing projects in the 1960s and 70s. And in our minds, if you've ever seen a bad like B horror movie about a, a project, in your mind, that image is still ingrained. But that's not at all what anybody's proposing to build today. We've learned a lot of lessons. Um, there are a lot of opportunities to build really beautiful density, um, to build more housing really well. And it's important that we think about that level of density because um, as Angela was sharing earlier, mobility is a big issue for a big segment of the population. And it's not just the vulnerable folks who have a, a shortage of income. It's also all of the young people in this community who are under the age of 16. Mm -hmm. um, unless mom or dad doesn't work and feels like driving those kids around all day, all the time, to soccer and violin and school and band and all of those other things, um, having mobility choice in the marketplace is critical. But then also thinking about our aging senior citizens, regardless of how much money they have. Mobility choice is critical. Um, I was just sharing before this that I've got a 97-year-old grandfather in one of the Holland Home buildings. Um, and it was just like two years ago that we told him he couldn't drive anymore. Um, he was doing great. Um, and when, when we said, you know, really, Opa, you can't have the car anymore. This is a problem. Um, he's like, I know, I know. Um, but six months later, we could see a precipitous decline in his health because of the isolation that that lack of mobility creates for him. 
you know, we're, we're going to visit, we're doing everything that we can, but he's not able to go to the grocery store or the pharmacy or any of those things that he would normally have done. And that, that little bit of exercise he would have gotten on his own was critical to his health, and, and we can see that occurring. Um, and so providing for mobility choice across the landscape um, not only is more sustainable for all of those households, but it is also the quickest way that I can offset somebody's monthly expenses by $500. So the day you get rid of one of those cars in your two or three stall garage is the day that you stop spending that five or $600 a month on the payment and on repairs and on gas and on insurance. And for a family that's gotta be making choices about rent or prescriptions or rent or food, being able to say, you know what, you don't have to worry about the car payment anymore because the bus will get you there in the 12 minutes that you could have commuted there. Those are critical elements to our infrastructure and it's all about how we prioritize. So I touched on this earlier, but it's important to think about our vulnerable populations as we're building for mobility because uh, the bike lanes that we have around town and the bike lanes that we have across the region are great, but if they're not separated from vehicular traffic, these users will not use those facilities because they're smarter than that, right? They know, frankly, I know increasingly as I get older that I shouldn't be riding my bike in the middle of the street, right? One of these days I'm gonna get hit. So if we're building for mobility, infrastructure has to think about all of the needs. Uh, so real quickly, uh, I know you've absorbed a ton of data tonight because we've got a lot of people with a lot of data. Um, <clears throat> We conducted a housing needs assessment for the county. Um, we've got specific data for Southwest Michigan, but I'm not gonna go into that level of detail. What you're looking at right now is the number of units that we need at each price point. Um, rentals, for sale, and senior. So you can see there's a lot of units that we need. It's roughly 7,500 units across the county. Um, for Southwest Ottawa, for the Holland Zealand region, we need about 2,800 units to be on balance with what the market is demanding right now. And so that's a combination of market rate, um, you know, traditional for sale single family homes, as well as market rate apartments. But then it's also workforce housing, which we define uh, as that segment of housing that used to be just like the B level apartment building that's not getting built today. Um, for folks who are earning somewhere between 25 and $50,000 a year, um, and then there's the subsidized housing that really requires the tax credit to make it work. Uh, if anybody has a phone or a calculator on you right now, I want you to get it out. We're gonna do a little math equation real quick. Because I, I want you to understand what does it actually cost to build a unit of housing. So in your mind, I want you to think about what is the appropriate size of an apartment. Uh, I, I don't care what the number is, I'm not gonna ask you to share it. Think about how many square feet you think an apartment should be and type that number in. And then multiply that number by 175. So that's what it costs to build that apartment. The apartment in your mind, that's the number, that's how much it's gonna cost in dollars, American. Now, divide that number by 10. And that's the annual rent required in order to sustain that cost, divide that number by 12, and that's the monthly rent. So whatever the, the size unit was that you just dreamed up, that's the rent that would, that would be the minimum rent that somebody would have to pay in order to make that unit work financially. And that's quick back of the napkin, like 
Developer 101, if somebody's scoping out a piece of property, they're gonna say, well, these are all the things that are gonna cost me. $175 per square foot is the average cost in today's market to build a new unit of housing. Whether it's single family detached or multifamily, there are variances there, but on average it's 175 bucks a square foot. So now that you see what it actually costs to build a unit of housing, and you see what that unit has to rent for in order for the developer to break even, you start to understand the dilemma in terms of the math equation. Uh, there aren't a lot of developers out there who are willing to build a bunch of product and not make money on it. Mm -hmm. And so what we've got to think about is the new product that gets built over time, if it doesn't have a subsidy, it's not going to be affordable, period. In today's construction market, if there isn't some form of subsidy, whether it's state or federal or local, it will not be affordable. And in some circumstances, we have to say, great, it's more supply. It's gonna start to meet demand, it's gonna drive down scarcity, and prices will begin to stabilize. That does not happen overnight, right? That is a generational solution that will happen over several construction cycles, but it is, that's the long-term solution, is supply. The short-term solution is, how do we galvanize resources around the most vulnerable in the community and bring those to bear where they're most needed? And I don't, I don't have a, a proposal to do that overnight. But I think that this kind of a conversation is how we begin to think through, all right, what are the steps that we need to take in order to subsidize those units? So these are all the things that Housing Next is working on in partnership with all the agencies you've already heard from and others um, in, in the community. Um, so land use and planning, improving mobility options, wage growth is critical. Part of these kinds of efforts are designed to better educate our HR directors, our corporate CEOs, to better understand what, is, what does it actually cost to live in Ottawa County, and what should I be paying my people if I expect them to continue to show up to work. Uh, and then it, we really want to work to leverage resources across the community. Um, and innovation in the construction process, uh, it's important to know that we still pretty much build buildings the same way we did 100 years ago. And construction is almost the only industry that still operates in almost the exact same way it did 100 years ago. So we've got to think through, we're, we're frankly one of the, the capitals of lean manufacturing in West Michigan. We can apply that knowledge base to housing. Um, so part of what we need to be doing is not just leaning on our local uh, communities to think through how do we bring more supply to the market, but also leaning on the community as a region to think through how do we partner together? How do we collaborate? How do we break down silos that are preventing us from making progress? Because a lot of the time, I'm responsible for housing, and somebody else is responsible for transportation, and somebody else is responsible for planning, uh, and we might call each other every now and then, but we're not really thinking through design solutions together. We've got to be thinking through design solutions together. And you all have to be encouraging that to happen more. Uh, <clears throat> so this is, I think, one of my last slides. And, and it's critical that we think about how uh, investment in housing and upzoning and allowing for more housing to occur will impact land values, will impact equitability. So uh, we do still have some neighborhoods where you can buy a house for under $150,000. Um, which in today's market is affordable. Uh, the question is, if we start to in increase land values, how do we ensure that we're not pushing those families that really need that affordable housing out 
because we've increased land value and created development yield for a third party outside developer to come make money off of. And so what we've got to think through is um, design standards that allow for that equitable development to occur at the grassroots level and not just at the kind of upper echelons of the development community. The development community is great and I want them to make money and build more supply, but I also want each individual homeowner to benefit from these structural improvements that we're making. And we've got to think through the appropriate balance there. And then this is about uh, making uh, the amenities around density enjoyable for everybody. Right? So one of the beautiful things about adding more households to a particular community is more households can support more uh, products. Right? So the reason we suddenly have like five great coffee shops in the Holland Zealand region is one, because you're great coffee consumers, but two, because there's enough demand to support that level of supply. And the more demand that we create through people, the, the better restaurants get, um, the more opportunity you have for a diversity of choices in the marketplace. Um, and those become amenities that then draw more people in, both from the outside as tourists and from within the community. So thinking through how do we leverage those amenities to make uh, communities stronger. Is